0: from which we cannot shrink nor run away. And to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability. Welcome back to the Leading LDS Podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, and I'll be your host once again. Today, this episode is, can be a powerful one. One that's very helpful and that can be a very sharp tool for leaders out there who maybe interact with individuals experiencing a faith crisis or a faith transition, as it's sometimes said. I sit down with Bill Rill. He's on on the podcast a number of times. And this is sort of chapter two to the first podcast we did about uh, helping those that experience faith crisis. And so, not that you have to listen to them in any order, but uh, whether you do it before this episode or after, be sure to check that one uh, out as well um, on Leading LDS. So in this episode, we delve into a specific part of understanding a faith crisis, and that is the Fowler stages of faith. And uh, Bill will explain who James Fowler was and this model that he came up with, and it has helped me as a leader simply categorize and understand more completely what an individual is experiencing and why when they experience a faith crisis and where to go from here We talk about how to assist and mentor people that are going through this, how to help maybe a ward or a quorum uh, that has individuals with faith, the crises in it, to feel more welcome and to give them space. And so really fascinating interview. We get into the weeds a little bit, and so I encourage you, if you need to listen to this a few times, it is worth wrapping your head around these concepts so that the next time you uh, face somebody that is looking for some mentorship from a leader with some doubts they're experiencing, you will know where they're headed. So here is my interview with Bill Rill of Mormon Discussion. How are you, Bill? I'm doing awesome, Kurt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I appreciate you uh, coming back on. And before we kind of jump into the topic, maybe tell us a little bit. uh, I've mentioned... uh, well on our, our original interview um which I'll link to uh, in, in the notes here on this episode but you uh you are the host of Mormon Discussion podcast um how's that going maybe give us an update on on uh, how's how it's going and how how you see it going in the future
1: so i've been doing this for about 3 years for the listeners who haven't uh, heard me share my story on your podcast before Uh, About three years ago, I started a podcast to essentially help Latter-day Saints who were discovering uh, issues within church history. They were perhaps had a bad experience at their local ward level. And for whatever reason, they either had lost trust with the church or had begun to lose faith in the church. And I felt like that was just a sad thing to see happen. Having uh, gone through some of that myself and kind of put it back together, and, and consider myself a faithful, you know, active believer. I wanted to make sure that I, I helped other members to try and, and get their testimony or their, their thoughts in the church back to maybe a healthy place where they could continue on in the church and, and be active and be faithful. So the podcast essentially releases an episode every week where I try to help members realize that Mormonism maybe is a lot bigger than, than the way it was taught to them. And so when things don't match up for them, just to help them take a step back and see there's more room to put it back together than maybe they thought.
0: Yeah, perfect. And uh, and as far as how it relates to leading LDS, you know, the reason I like to have you on as a guest is in in the realm of individuals that maybe approach a bishop, um, elders quorum president, even a Relief Society president, and share maybe some concerns or doubts that they're experiencing uh, in relation to uh, either the doctrine of of the gospel or the historical context of the gospel or, or of the Latter Day Church, um, and a, I think a, an inexperienced leader can really feel awkward in those moments. I don't know what to say. Uh, you know, I don't know even what resources to to point them to, or uh, maybe it, it brings up questions in their own mind. And I encourage those listening to check out the the first interview I did. It was actually the very first, uh, I guess, official podcast episode, and Bill's been so kind and kind of leading me uh, navigating these these waters in the podcast world. But um, it, in that podcast, we spoke generally about faith crises and how a leader should um, maybe uh, mentor somebody that's going through this and, and approach it. And how to what what. What to say and what not to say, those types of things. where in this in this uh, interview, Bill, what I want to do is um, you've mentioned, uh, you have many episodes around this topic of the Fowler stages of faith. and, and maybe I'll let you let you describe or, or uh, tell us who, who J- is James Fowler if I'm, I'm not mistaken. and uh, who is he and where does this this model come from?
1: So James W. Fowler is essentially a behavioral scientist. He he studies things like psychology and he's trying to figure out why people do the things the way they do. And and so Mr. Fowler ends up doing this study with um with different people of different ages, but he focuses kind of on college students. And what he's doing is trying to figure out how the faith of people develops over time. Now he's not the only one to do this. There's other people uh last name Kohlberg, another last name Maslow, a uh, William Perry. Uh there's a book written called The Critical Journey by Janet uh, Hagberg and Robert Gulich. And and all of these and there's many more too. All of these folks have tried to do research studies, interviews to try to figure out how uh, how our mind develops over time as we grow f- through different ages and stages. Uh, but Fowler focuses specifically on faith. And what Fowler came up with as he looked at uh, toddlers, youth, teenagers, young adults, and then into full adulthood, he was looking at uh, how people see their relationship with faith or maybe even more specifically with God and how that paradigm changed he he ends up splitting these phases into what he calls six different stages of faith and uh, and each of those kind of have some markers to them it might be just important to say as we kind of jump into maybe thinking about each of these stages and and specifically i think we're probably going to spend time tonight talking about 3 4 and 5 right. he numbers them 1 through 6 the the stages while they do kind of end up separated. So, stage one is different from stage two. The reality is none of us have this like light bulb moment where one day we're in one stage and the next day we're in another. We often have our feet in more than one stage. And we might even be, you know, one stage in one part of our life and in another stage completely different in another part of our life. And so, As we think about these stages and start talking about them, he's just separated them as a way to talk about them, to discuss them, to kind of have insight into them. But it's a lot more messy than that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the thing that's really helped me
0: as a leader understanding these Fowler stages of faith is, you know, it's easy for a leader, especially somebody like myself, I'll just speak for myself, someone who's raised in the church is from Utah and not only uh, believes in, in the, the gospel, but lives in the culture of the gospel that it's often found uh, in Utah. And it's easy when somebody struggles with some point of doctrine or a, a historical concern to say, make it very black and white, that you're either in the faith, or you're not in the faith, or you have a testimony, or you don't have a testimony. And this helped me to kind of classify and and help me understand what an individual is going through. And because I'm understanding that, it's helped me validate those individuals more. And so as leaders may listen to this, um, I'm not saying that you should take this as, as gospel. I mean, you can make your own determination, but... It's a it's a model and a paradigm that that can help you as a leader to understand what the person is going through and why, and that to know that there is hope. Um, you know, there there are levels beyond stage four, which we'll we'll talk about. Um, and, and anything you would add in that in that context, there, Bill.
1: Well, I think that this these stages are helpful. My concern in always talking about stages of faith and anytime you read articles on these stages, you'll find these points made that, that sometimes people will use these stages to kind of beat up at each other. And that yeah. really shouldn't be the point of, of this. It shouldn't be one where someone goes out and says, yeah, I can see I'm in stage four and my, my bishop's in stage three. Shame on him. Right. It shouldn't be used that way. Rather, this should be kind of a internal looking at ourselves in, and perhaps realizing that while we might be struggling with the church right now or struggling with religion in general, or, or maybe even just flat out struggling with God, that, that there is this journey that's going on and that just because we're frustrated and upset and having a, having difficulty reconciling our faith at the very moment doesn't mean that there's not a light further ahead. And I think seeing these stages gives us something to look back on and learn from, but also to look forward and see something we can head towards.
0: Yeah, and also at uh, Bill today, we're recording this on the thirty first of May, and it's a fifth Sunday. And today, during the fifth Sunday lesson in my ward, I spent the third hour teaching about uh, these stages of faith. And that's one point I made is that it's easy to sort of you sort of want to label people or say where do I fit? You know, which stage am I in? Um, And and I think it's easy to assume that oh, so if you're a five, that means you're you're more progressed than a three or a four. But in reality, I kind of told those in my class saying, you know, regardless of where you are, it's just it's just kind of a good information to know, and then. If you do shift to another stage, you can recognize that there's a shift happening rather than, oh, my world is spinning out of control. I don't know what to do. And it, but it, you just recognize that a shift's happening. And that's OK. It's OK if you're in three. It's OK if you're in four. It's OK if your five year old is in two or one. Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with those stages. It's just where you're at right now. And if you may remain there for the
1: rest of your life and that's OK, would, would you agree with that? I do. I don't think anybody can push somebody. I think it's unhealthy to try and push somebody from one stage to another. I think that these are progressive stages in the sense that you can't skip a stage. Um, you can't, you can't put certain experiences in your path on purpose to try to move yourself from stage to stage. And so there's no sense in beating each other up based on where we're at. Rather, this is just a chance to look at ourselves, recognize where we are in a journey and And to, as you point out, not let our world spin out of control uh, because now we can look kind of take a step back and look at this and realize there's a process going on, right.
0: Well, let's jump into it, bill, maybe, and this is one of those topics that we could go on for four hours and not really uh you know understand completely each stage, and so, but I just want to kind of give a reader's digest version of what these steps are, just so we can put them in context to those listening. And understand them. And of course, uh, Bill's been kind enough to send me various links and things. If you want to delve into these stages and understand them further, it'd be well worth your time and and we'll definitely provide those resources. But maybe take us through each stage. How how does it work? Uh, How's it set up and and so forth?
1: Well, I won't spend a whole lot of time on stages one and two. I think think essentially anybody listening to this podcast has moved beyond those. But Fowler – called stage one intuitive projective stage. And he said this essentially would be found between kids, the age of three to seven. Um, Wikipedia would characterize it this way, as far as kind of giving a synopsis of the stage. It says it it's characterized by the psyche's unprotected exposure to the unconscious. It is marked by a relative fluidity of thought patterns. Religion is learned mainly through experiences, stories, images, and people that one comes in contact with. Now that's going to sound like a bunch of gibberish, but the simple way maybe <laughs> to explain it is to just reflect back when you were three to, to seven years old, everything was so simple, magical, whether we're talking about Santa Claus or the Easter bunny, uh, even that almost would be too complicated for a three to seven year old. It, it It's almost kind of a three to seven year old would be unable to really make a solid connection to things they can't see, touch and feel, and so it'll be almost uh, maybe magical. The stage 2 follower called mythic literal faith, and I think this is where we'll start to kind of make sense of things. Uh, again, the Wikipedia synopsis of this says that stage 2 persons have a strong belief in the justice and reciprocity of the universe, and their deities are almost always anthropomorphic. During this time, metaphors and symbolic language are often misunderstood and are taken literally. This mythic literal kind of connection, everything again, I said stage one's kind of magical. Stage two is kind of uh, mythical. If we think of like Zeus and folklore and Medusa with snakes off her head, you know, these are the times where if kids hear a story, they'll take it. Absolutely. They won't see the allegory in it. They won't see the symbolism going on. And, This is a kind of a stage where a lot of um, misunderstandings can occur or people can maybe reach too far on things. And I want to kind of leave those two behind. If somebody wants to read more of these, uh, Fowler, essentially the book he wrote was called uh, Stages of Faith. It's a, it's a popular book still, even years and years after it was written, people could pick that up and read it, but I want to jump into stage three. Let me interject
0: real quick here with, with those two stages, uh, today in my, uh, in my lesson to kind of have a fun way to introduce it. I had us sing the uh, primary children's hymn, follow the prophet, um, which is a fun, you know, hymn for kids to sing and we sing it in primary. It's great. Um and it's sort of you know kids love to sing it right and there's different story different verses and stories that go along with it and it kind of has this feeling of you know we follow the prophet don't go astray and uh, and it's okay for kids to sing that at the time it's not like we're trying to hypnotize them or anything but it's they're kind of in that stage where that type of song is applicable and you can start building a foundation but obviously if we were in a uh, in a elders Quorum class and we were, forcing people to sing this song over and over again. it wouldn't make sense. It would almost seem like some strange uh, cult that we're, we're in that, that's pushing this this uh, this song, right? And so I, I use that kind of as an example of saying, you know in these stages there it's kind of a mythical thing. The prophet is they know he's real, but he's just this supreme you know nicest man in the world, which which kind of is. but uh, I don't know, is that sort of in the, in the correct line of thinking with the, the first two stages?
1: Yeah, very good. I think it, when we relate it kind of to that song, yet yeah, you're right. The kids would see the prophet not in any kind of personal relationship where they're concerned about, uh, his life experiences or want to know more about him. Rather, he is this magical, mythical figure who they simply have this kind of abstract understanding of who he is and what he stands for. And and so the song is very simple, but it's a primary song and it kind of reaches a kid at the level they're at. The stage two would generally be found between like the ages of, of like seven and 11, seven and 12 would be kind of where, where this stage begins and kind of leaves off. Perfect. Okay. So take us into, into stage three. So stage three is where the fun really gets, begins. It's called the <laughs> synthetic conventional stage. It's a, it's characterized by conformity to religious authority. Uh and, and I probably should say here, and maybe you probably made this point during uh during your lesson, you kind of hinted at it as you were talking a couple minutes ago, that most of the population gets to stage three. Fowler guessed that somewhere in the range of like ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of human beings, uh and maybe even more, at least that you know get completely into stage three and have left stage one and two completely behind. But he also makes this neat observation that about eighty percent of the people who get into stage three never move out of it; they stay in stage three. This is a stage that you know they essentially inhabit most of their adult life. And it should also be said that these stages are not based on intelligence. These these stages are not necessarily based on certain life experiences. Um, they're really they're really the only connection between progression from stage to stage is one's interaction with those that are different than them that hold different positions and so for instance and I and we'll go back into the stage three but I just want to make this point yeah. people who entered into stage four Fowler found that this happened begin to pick up a, a quite a, a large pace when kids would go off to colleges and universities. And if we can just picture that kind of university college atmosphere, kids are all of a sudden around people who are very different from them, hold very different values, who have very different beliefs. And that kind of interaction is what kind of moved them from stage three into stage four. Now I'll back up. Stage three is a very literal stage as well. And we, you were talking earlier about this black and white idea. Most people in stage three would be characterized By seeing the world in a black and white way, they would, they would say us versus them. So if we say, you know, Mormons versus non-Mormons, uh, when we look at, uh, good and evil, for instance, we would split that dichotomy very cleanly. There are very good people. There are very evil people. And it's just the way the world is seen by these, these individuals that are in stage three. They, they simply would always be splitting any kind of idea that they see in the world, they would be splitting into a dichotomy, um, and and that's probably an easy way to kind of pinpoint people that are in stage three. Um, one example, you and I were talking to you the other night. I, when I look back on my life, if I were to go back seven or eight years ago, there was a time in my life where I was a very huge fan of listening to Glenn Beck and listening to Rush Limbaugh. Nothing against those two guys. I still listen to them a little bit and still appreciate some of the things they add to the conversation. But at the time I was listening to them, it was very apparent in my mind that these were the good guys. And the things they were talking about, these were the truths that the world was trying to hide. And these guys had figured it out. And people like our president, President Obama or President Clinton from before, because I, I consider myself a, a conservative and I was a very strong Republican conservative at that time. I saw those guys as evil and bad and, and as essentially the worst of the worst. And in this stage three, that's how my mind would separate the world. If one was a Republican, they were a good guy. And if they were a Democrat and they were a bad guy and all Republicans were essentially good guys and all Democrats were bad guys. And the other thing about stage three that should be said is this idea of where we place our authority. Um, Again, Fowler said it was characterized by a conformity to religious authority and what he means by that is that our beliefs weren't intrinsic. Rather, they were extrinsic. And And I mean, when I say that, what I mean is that our beliefs aren't something that we personally are holding because we've researched the issue, we've studied it out, we've thought about it from all sides. Rather, those people that we trust to give us truth and information They've told us that that's what we should agree with and believe. And hence we've done so. And I think that's important that we, that we recognize that in stage three, we've placed our authority in the hands of somebody else rather than inside of ourselves. And so I think that probably sums up to the best of my ability, kind of where people would be at in stage three.
0: Yeah. And I, and just to clarify is I don't think by any means you are, there's, there's no negative. I mean, each stage has its has its positives and negatives, and so it's not you're you're not losing the race if you're stuck in stage three, or it, it's just the where where you're at. And I think, like you said, that that authority coming from outside, whether it's a priesthood holder, uh, parents, um, you know, political leaders, whatever it is, and then um, that in that stage three, that authority is generally outside of yourself, rather than. Coming from inside yourself, well this is what I think this is um, this is how I see the world and this is what my research shows, and so this is how I'm going to believe
1: And so it's not necessarily bad to be in stage three, right? It's not and it's probably important to note that our Father in heaven, having created us, has made us in a way that that he knows us best and has designed us in a way to kind of handle life. We would not want we would not want especially in younger kids right we wouldn't want our our 12 year old placing his authority inside himself and not placing in the world we we wouldn't cuz that would cause a lot of turmoil with someone who's who's not at a point where they can quite handle those kinds of decisions and and having maybe a rule placed in front of them i look at the scriptures for instance the scriptures are often talking about thou shalt and thou shalt not and the scriptures line out lots of rules when we look at the Jewish culture that Jesus lived in, uh, they had the Mosaic Law, which was, of course, the Ten Commandments, but then there was like 1,217 other rules that had to be followed uh, to live within that culture. I think there's no way around it. Through In our lives, we're going to have rules and laws and and things we can do and are encouraged to do and things that we can't do and, and shouldn't break. And you're right in saying that you know, there's no such thing as being. You know, it's bad to be in stage three. Rather, I'm simply trying to state that the the absolute fact of stage three is that those folks do see the world in a dichotomy generally, and they generally place the authority for their beliefs and decisions outside themselves. Is that bad? Not necessarily. And Fowler makes the same case, but there's also no way around saying that that's what stage three is, right? And so, uh, and, and I guess I
0: want to really hit that point is because like you said, 80% of the general population is, is, is in stage three. And you could say that within the church generally, just you can sit through any fast and testimony meeting and hear that it's a very, uh, I know these things are true. I know the prophet lived or, or the prophet, I believe in a latter day prophet, you know, it's, there's not – you don't get and hear a lot of these philosophical testimonies about, uh, well, you know, I'm not sure how black and white it is. You know, there's a lot of absolute stated in, in testimony meaning And again, there's nothing wrong with that per se. I mean, to each their own. Um, but I guess the, the, the point I want to make is that the most people listing this right now, uh, you know, many leaders, even myself, I would consider mo- – majority of my feet are planted in in stage three. Um, And and I'm okay with that. And I recognize that. And I just say, well, that's the stage I'm in. And if the shift happens, then I can recognize that when that shift happens.
1: Yeah. And and like you're pointing out too, no stage is good or bad. And there are positives and negatives to each stage. Uh, In fact, as we kind of move forward here and jump into stage four, um, we're going to realize here as we talk about it that most people would probably rather be in stage three than stage four because stage four has the most tension and uh, struggle within it. Perfect. So if you want to jump into stage four, J- stage four Fowler called the individuative reflective faith. Uh, he, he termed this an age between like the mid twenties to late thirties. And I should say here, he acknowledges that only a small group of people transitioned into that stage during that age group. But because his studies were focused on college kids, he basically came out with the conclusion that if someone is going to transition from stage three to stage four, the healthiest time to do that is in one's younger to mid-twenties, late-twenties, that by the time one gets to their thirties, forties, fifties, and begins to... If they begin to leave stage three and move into stage four, uh, he calls it a stage of angst and struggle, and more so the later on in life we make that transition. Uh, he talks about how the individual takes personal responsibility for his or her beliefs and feelings. So that's what we were talking about earlier. Stage three, uh, folks would place their authority very much outside themselves. For the first time in their life, people entering stage four are beginning to say, you know, my community tells me X, Y, Z, but I just don't agree with that. I'm really struggling with that. And so Latter-day Saints in stage four, if we relate this to, to a religious paradigm, Latter-day Saints in stage four are beginning to look at the things that are said by prophet seers, and revelators, or by their bishop, or by their home teacher, or by their parents even, or a Sunday school teacher. And they'll hear something said, and they'll begin to say, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just a characteristic of stage four. But the reason stage four is full of angst and struggle is because up until this point, everything fit together beautifully. Those who they trusted as authorities to give them truth and information, they felt like that conveying of information was a perfect, uh, a perfect communication that they were, were trusting in completely. And then all of a sudden in stage four, they're realizing that not everything fits quite as perfect as they thought, and it will cause some Latter-day Saints, and this is the stage where most Latter-day Saints who have a faith crisis, the stage they're at when they have it, because all of a sudden things aren't meshing up and they begin to question everything. They begin to wonder, well, if if this thing was taught to me for the last 20 years and it no longer fits, maybe everything else should be doubted. And so this is a, a really tough stage for Latter-day Saints to go through. And, and sadly, just as we talked about a large chunk of people who get into stage three stay there, uh, a chunk of people who get into stage four stay there. And many of them, you know, some may leave the church, and and they will just be absolutely critical about every single thing within the church. And it's simply because they think they figured it all out, but in reality— they're still making adjustments and they just don't see it yet. Uh, Again, stage four is a hard stage. If you meet anybody who is having a faith crisis, maybe at least take a step back and realize this is the stage they're in. They're just naturally in this, in this progressive form of faith development. They're just naturally all of a sudden realizing that things don't fit as well as they used to. They're questioning everything. This isn't something they can necessarily help, there's a lot of tension here, and maybe just knowing that would help us have a little more empathy uh, for folks who find themselves in here. Um, for the first time, they're kind of open to a new complexity within their faith, and uh, this also increases as we're talking about the awareness of uh, conflict within one's belief. And I and I don't want to I don't want to belabor this point of kind of stage three and stage four, but I think it's an interesting story. When I was talking to you the other day about your fifth Sunday lesson and kind of putting this interview together, I was reminded of a a time I went into a ward council and I was just thinking about this idea of seeing things black and white and also beginning to see kind of complexity, nuance, gray area in lots of issues within the world. And I walked into this ward council, I was serving as a bishop at the time. And uh, I asked the entire ward council, I said, I just want to ask you guys a question before I share my spiritual thought. I said, how many of you guys think that lying is always wrong? And about half the ward council raised their hand. And I just let them sit there for a minute and just think about that. And then I posed a story to them. I said, okay, I appreciate, you know, those of you who thought this question through and, and some of you raised your hand and some of you didn't. Let me ask, let me tell you a story. I said, you're upstairs sleeping in your bed. It's the middle of the night and all of a sudden you hear this loud noise. You're startled and become awake. And as you're thinking about this noise that just startled you, you realize you're putting your your thoughts together. You realize that someone just broke into your house. That was somebody knocking the door down. So you immediately jump to your feet. You rush across the hallway to your bedroom or to your kid's bedroom. You wake your children up quickly, take them by the arm and you take them into your room and you hide them underneath your bed. And, The intruder makes his way up the stairs to your to your bedroom. He confronts you, pulls a gun out, puts it to your head and says, where are your children at? I'm going to take them. And you say, essentially, sorry about your luck, but they spent the night at their friend's house. They're not here. And all of a sudden, everyone in that ward council realized what I was getting at, which was originally some in the ward council had made the assumption that lying was always wrong. And we've always been taught that. We've been taught that the liar shall be thrust to hell, that one of the temple questions is if we're honest with our fellow men. Uh, Throughout our lives, we're taught that lying is a bad thing. And so most of us see it as a black and white issue. Lying is bad, always. The reality is that when we start to see the messiness of things that can happen and the things we have to do to protect those around us, we begin to see that lying in some instances is not wrong. Another example would be if the um, if you hit a Jewish man in your attic in Germany, and the Nazis come to your door and say, "Do you have any Jews here?" and you say, "No, I don't." Now I can't believe for the life of me that God would hold you accountable for being deceptive in that moment, but the reality is that you were just dishonest. And so I think we all have to kind of come to grips at times that that there are exceptions to the rule and the exceptions to every rule make things much more messy than maybe we want them to be but that's just the nature of life and those entering stage 4 for the very first time are beginning to kind of see that face to face. Perfect. Yeah, great great uh,
0: great illustration on on that, you know, sometimes a simple rule doesn't always fit in every circumstance, right?
1: Right, and and it applies to Mormonism as well. So one quick example would be that when polygamy was happening in early church history, there were moments within the church's history that while Joseph and other leaders are practicing polygamy privately, Joseph is publicly saying the church is not doing it. Now, critics get really frustrated, and I would argue that these critics are also still kind of in this stage three, seeing it black and white. But the critics get really frustrated because here's Joseph Smith, a prophet of God, and he's lying. The reality is that Joseph's in a tough situation. If he opens up publicly about what the church is practicing at that moment, and knowing the persecution they are under without talking about polygamy publicly, I can only imagine the harm and danger that the saints would have been in had Joseph been completely public, completely forthright and boasting from the mountaintops that the church had begun this practice of plural marriage. And so it once we realize how messy life really is and begin to see kind of these exceptions to the rule, all of a sudden we have more room to allow Joseph Smith and other church leaders flexibility when they get something wrong, allow them a little more room to still be a prophet while having made a mistake. And then all of a sudden, knowing that prophets, seers and revelators, while certainly men of God called and authorized, are not infallible, now all of a sudden we can live with that infallibility. I mean, sorry, that fallibility. I'm sorry. Right, right. And um, going back, and I don't mean to
0: keep jumping back from four to three, but there is kind of an interesting relationship between these two, uh, where you talk about the messiness, where usually in stage three, when people kind of hear, you know, rumors of it, of history being messy or doctrines being messy, they their their first inclination is to dismiss it and to look for a reason to dismiss it and say, "Oh well, there must be something wrong with that critic. Um, he's probably crazy, anyways." Or because they just want it's it's nice being in stage three. It's comfortable. It's. Um, <laughs> That's why I like, like being there. Um, and you don't have to deal with that me- messiness and process it and figure out how this is going to fit in a box that really doesn't fit in,
1: right? Right, and, and it applies to the critics as well. We're, we're kind of talking about this, but this idea of, you know, the person in stage three who's an active member of the church, when they hear some troublesome fact, their first inclination is to say it's anti-Mormon propaganda. On the other hand, the critic who likes to think – that he's had the wool pulled off of his eyes and he's now no longer brainwashed. and He sees the church for exactly what it is. And yet what he doesn't realize is that when he sees, you know, Joseph being uh, deceptive about the practice of polygamy, for instance, his immediate reaction is that is absolutely unbecoming of a prophet. And therefore the church isn't true. What he doesn't know is that he is also still in that stage three black and white way of seeing things so he thinks he's moved on. He thinks he's progressed because he has more information perhaps, but the reality is that he still isn't quite at a point where he can see the room for those exceptions to the rule.
0: Right. Perfect.
1: Well, let's, uh and, and I want to come back to
0: this and talk a little bit more about this relationship between three and four, because- Generally, when a, uh, an individual in stage four goes to talk to their bishop, it is a conversation between a stage three Mormon and a stage four Mormon. But let's maybe finish this off and, and just to get the complete model, let's move on to stage
1: five and then uh, finish off with six. And I'll be quick on both of these. Stage five is a, is a really cool stage in the sense that one has figured out a way to move out of stage four and into a place where the tension is no longer present. They've they've come to complete grips with the idea that the world is messy, there's lots of complexities, there's lots of nuance, there's evidence on both sides. One of the things that uh, I get a lot of flack for in my podcast for instance, and this is what I, and I'm not saying I'm in stage 5, but this is at least one stage 5 concept. Is that I'll look at church history, I'll look at the gospel, I'll look at uh, various things going on within my faith's history, and I'll say, you know what, there's evidence on both sides. There's evidence that the church isn't true, and there's evidence that the church is, and this is a paradox. This is two valid ideas that are butting heads with each other, and I've become very comfortable with that. I've become very. It's become very natural to recognize, acknowledge, and validate both sides. That would be very stage five. Fowler says that a stage five person acknowledges paradox and transcendence relating. I'm sorry, transcendings relating reality behind the symbols of inherited systems. The individual resolves conflicts from previous stages by a complex understanding of multidimensional interdependent truth. That cannot be explained by any particular statement. That sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. <laughs> but the easiest thing for me to point to would be, um, so I'll, I'll give us Adam Miller, uh, a scholar in the church, and I was talking to you about this the other day. Um, I asked him about what his thoughts were on whether the flood, flood was a global flood or whether it was a local flood mentioned in the scriptures. His comment was, the global flood has some problems, but in, in terms of what's important to him, this question absolutely doesn't matter. Uh, another example would be that most Mormons, when they get up and they say the Book of Mormon is true, most Latter-day Saints in stage three are simply bearing testimony that this book is historically true. Now, whether it is or isn't is not important, but a stage five person would move beyond saying, I know the Book of Mormon is true and seeing those words simply have that meaning. They might also be talking about the Book of Mormon's true in that, the fruits of the Book of Mormon uh bear witness in their life when they're put into action. And so a stage five person will still use the same words and vocabulary of a stage three uh, person, but those words will have very complex meanings. They will have very alternate meanings, and they cannot be simply explained as Fowler points out by any particular statement. It's just it would take three hours for a person in stage five to explain what they mean by the church is true. Whereas a person in stage three could do it in one sentence, probably. Yeah. Um, so it's, this is a much more peaceful stage. Someone has just grown comfortable with the messiness of life. And then stage six, we don't have a lot of examples of stage six. Stage six is called a universalizing faith. Uh, Fowler proposed that maybe 1% of people somewhere around there get to stage six. Very few people do. The perfect example is Jesus. Uh, but stage six would be characterized by somebody who is willing to put the health, well-being, and benefit of all others in front of their own needs. They will essentially sacrifice their well-being in order to help all those around them. And people who make it to stage six are so revolutionary that often their life is at jeopardy. So people like Martin Luther King, um, Mother Teresa, uh, Jesus, of course, being mentioned as one of those, those would be examples of people that as we look at these stages, we don't know for sure. We would propose that these folks have gotten close to or in stage six, but essentially they now live a life where they put ideals in front of their own health and will do whatever they can to serve someone else, uh, even if it costs them their life. See, so, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between three and four, because this is where
0: the most damage can be done by a bishop. And this is really the, the crux of this, this episode. It was necessary to kind of go through the stages, understand them, build that context there. But what happens in a bishop's office, or with an elders quorum president, or even with a member in a Sunday school class when a stage four Mormon walks into that office, they are generally meeting with a stage three Mormon, the bishop. Now, maybe it's a unique situation, and that bishop is a stage five Mormon, or they're kind of on their way from a stage four to stage five, and so they have some experience with, it, uh, with the uh, experiencing, uh, you know, betrayal and doubt, and so uh, it's important that 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 relationship and that interaction is done appropriately. And, and, and Bill, let me kind of just give an example is that may be very common. And I've heard it a time or two, and you've probably heard it more than me, where someone may go to their bishop and there's this tendency with stage three Mormons to want to pull back the stage 4 to stage 3 and the reality is this is a one way track there's no way to go backwards and so but we we it feels comfortable being in stage 3 where everything's black and white everything fits perfectly into this nice little box and so we want to pull them back to stage 3 and so the the bishop may say something like oh well what are you reading no 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 that's That's silly. You know, that that guy's crazy. Don't listen to him. And it really at the end of the day that the problem is, is it doesn't matter if the reason that person shifted to stage four is fact or not, or if it's a good resource or not. The reality is they're in stage four and they don't need to be told why they need to come back to stage three because they've already in stage four. What are your thoughts on
1: that? Am I on the right track with that? Yeah, that's really good. And I would add a few things to it. Um, and I'll give you an example. Marlon Jensen, he was giving a, a little fireside to some students at Utah State University. And Elder Marlon Jensen was the former church historian, member of the 70. I think he was in the presidency of the 70. He said this. He said, when someone comes in with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer. Number two, he snaps and says, get in line, don't question the prophet, get back to doing your home teaching, and that isn't helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better, I think, to be sympathetic and empathetic and to draw out these people where they are coming from and what's brought them to the point that they are at. What they have read, what they are thinking is, and try to understand them. Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time, but beyond that, I think we really need to figure out a way to live a little bit with people who may never get completely settled. Now, I've talked to Elder Jensen face-to-face, I should say voice-to-voice over the phone, and had a long conversation with him. And I would say that that Elder Jensen here, uh, Elder Marlon Jensen is posing both the inappropriate way to handle this, the inappropriate way being to feel like that someone in stage four who's struggling with their faith simply needs to get back to doing what the person in stage three is doing because it's working for that person in stage three. So the bishop looks at his life and he says, look, I read the scriptures every day. I pray every day. I'm having family home evening. And so this faith thing just comes naturally to me. And my faith seems really simple and it works. And I see the blessings from it. And that's great. I validate that. But the person in stage four, number one, is not necessarily avoiding reading the scriptures or praying or having family home evening. But the second thing, too, is that, as you point out, this this journey is progressive. There is no going back to stage three. So to simply say, hey, you're struggling because maybe you're sinning, that would be a horrible answer. Right. To say you're struggling because you just need to read your scriptures more. Uh, or you're struggling because the things you're reading are anti-mormon propaganda those would all be really bad answers right what elder jensen suggests and what is the best answer is to try to empathize to try to you know take a step back and say man this person has come into contact with whatever information or experience that has caused them to really severely doubt things within the church and i don't have to validate That their reasons are good or the information is absolutely makes the church not true. But what I do need to do is validate that this person is really in a hard time right now, that they're not dumb, that they have read things for whatever reason that have bothered them, and to try and just kind of work with them to get them to open up about how that whole process has worked and to essentially earn their trust again so that you can begin giving good counsel rather than just rushing in. And saying, "Hey, if you do the standard five things, your testimony will come back." So, so validation is
0: really the the key. There is that, regardless of what their um, what their shift into stage four is based on, if they don't feel validated and loved in that interaction, they will never come back and give you another chance to have that interaction. And so, it could be something that is in fact false. You know, truly anti Mormon propaganda, but if they don't feel that you're actually listening to them and validating them and helping them discover for themselves where truth is, then they're just going to see you as not a strong resource to go to as they go through this process.
1: And you probably ought to consider what kind of a challenge it was for them to come in and see you in the first place. So I'll just relate my own experience. Having having gone through a really deep, dark, awful faith crisis, there were several things that ran through my mind when it came to talking to a leader and trying to work this out. One is I waited a long time to do it because I was afraid that if I went to my leaders and told them the things that I had read and the things that I was thinking and the problems I now had with it, I was worried that I would hurt their testimony, number one. Number two, I was worried that they would not understand where I was coming from and would begin to judge me. And when a bishop says, if you would just pray more, this would all go away, whether the bishop recognizes it or not, that really is a judgment that would be the wrong the wrong effort to make at that very moment. As you point out, Kurt, the very first thing one needs to do, and maybe this will take three or four visits with the member. Maybe you'll have to sit down for an hour on three different occasions. But just to earn their trust, let them know that, hey, I completely validate how much anguish you're feeling. I want to understand how you got to this point. And, and it may even take a leader doing some research on his own end to, to look up some of these facts to see if, if these things are true. Let me stop here and say one thing. Often someone in stage four has encountered information they've never heard before. This information is probably information the person in stage three has never heard before either. The reality is that the critic takes new information that we as members have not perhaps heard, and they put their own conclusion on that information. When the member comes in to talk to the bishop, he's saying, I'm really struggling with issue XYZ. The bishop immediately comes to the conclusion that XYZ has to absolutely be false. The reality is the conclusion that the church isn't true from the information is false, but the information itself probably has a lot of truth to it, and that as a leader, we ought to at least step back. And take a look at the information, look it up ourselves, go do a Google search, find out where it comes from, see where it was said, what sources it's in. Because the reality is that in the history of our church, leaders at times have said things, leaders at times have done things that wouldn't quite um, feel very faith-promoting at times, perhaps. Right. And I'm trying to say this as soft as I can. And the church at times has kind of said, look, we're certainly not going to focus on this mistake that brother so-and-so made. So we're going to set it off to the side and we're going to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it can be very surprising for a member who encounters this. I guess what I'm saying is is take a step back, give the person some space, and don't judge what they're saying immediately. Rather, just give them an ear to talk to, earn their trust first, go do some research on your own end. And then the end key is that when the two of you come back together, maybe the two of you can begin to say, okay, let's, here's the information, here's the facts, but it's the conclusion that the critic draws that we can begin to kind of um, change. And and maybe I'll even go back to when I was talking about Joseph Smith being dishonest about polygamy. If a member comes in to see the bishop and says, you know, Joseph Smith's a liar and the church isn't true. And you say, well, that's anti-Mormon propaganda. The reality is, if you were to take a step back and say, let's hear what your problem is, what is it's bothering you, let's go do some research. And so the bishop goes off that night, he goes home, he does his reading, he realizes that that Joseph was deceptive about the practice of polygamy. But then he can go in and read why that deception happened, that Joseph was trying to protect the lives of the saints around him. So now when he goes back in meeting number two with this member who's in stage four struggling, he can say, look, your facts are right. And I, I totally validate the anguish you're feeling, but let's see if we can't talk this through and figure out why this would have happened. And then all of a sudden, real progress can occur, and all of a sudden, you can put faith back on the table.
0: Yeah, perfect. And, and my last thought about this interaction uh, that a bishop may have or, or a leader, you know, a lot of the leaders, they they see this as a, as a problem, and so it's their job to help this person fix it. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that we were not called to fix these types of problems. What, are, what my goal is, and, and, and I've been in these situations where somebody comes in and shares something, and I listen to them, and in my head I'm saying, why on earth do you care? Like, I don't even see this as something to worry about. But it doesn't matter because in their mind, it's a very uh, troubling concern. And so instead of focused on trying to fix it, I'm always trying to just keep the person going, keep them moving and staying in the church as long as as long as they can and and explore and process these concerns within the right context, where if we don't validate, they may go out and find a different context, a context that isn't objective to really try and
1: and fix this. And I should add too Kurt, that and I was talking to you about this again the other night as well, that I would say eighty to ninety percent of people who find themselves in a deep faith crisis within Mormonism grew up in a very rigid home or in a very rigid ward where parents really imposed on them a very small box of what you have to believe and do to be an active, faithful Mormon. And perhaps it happened in their ward. Perhaps it was a bishop who was just a very hardliner. Uh, Perhaps it was a family that felt like, uh, for instance, Elder Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine was the answer to every question. And every question that came in, they would just pull the book off the shelf and look it up, and there's your answer, child. Those kinds of homes are the environment that really set up for a future faith crisis to occur. The last thing this person needs is to walk into a leader's office and sit down with them and have that exact same kind of rigid uh, paradigm being forced at them. What they really need is to be given room. And if I can just give one example, I've got a brother-in-law who is an atheist. And one of the reasons he's an atheist is because he believes in evolution and he feels like Christianity is completely against evolution. My father-in-law, who is a very good, faithful, hard-working, active Latter-day Saint, what he thinks is the The best solution to this problem is he goes to his atheist son and begins to provide him with information off the internet that proves that evolution is false that's his solution to the problem because my father-in-law thinks that lds theology is that evolution is false the reality of the problem is that if one digs into lds history there were leaders in the church who were against evolution, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, but there were also other leaders who were very comfortable with evolution, uh, David O. McKay, President McKay, B.H. Uh, Roberts, uh, John Widstow, James Talmadge, and others. And so rather than try to force a square peg into a round hole, what is the best solution is to completely open the box up and just give people as much room within Mormonism to hold their different ideas. And if you can do that, you're going to have a much better chance of keeping these people in and having them still be active, faithful believers in the church. Perfect. Well said. Uh, well, Bill, the last point I just want to hit on before we we
0: close up, and this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I hope people listen to it a, a few times because I know <laughs> it can be a, a concept that's hard to absorb just on a casual listen. But um, what about the this dynamic of in a classroom um, in, in a Sunday school classroom, for instance? because what like you said, it's important that when you know there's a stage four Mormon and really they're in every ward, I, I, I would believe somebody to some extent, that you have to be able to give them room, right and and allow them to feel validated in their their beliefs. And sometimes in a Sunday school class, they may sit in the back with their arms folded and uh, be mumbling to themselves of how ridiculous this or that is and that they don't believe this. And if only these people knew that. And so and we're afraid of sometimes they them raising their hand and giving a different perspective. And as leaders, we we sometimes, you know, early on as a leader, I felt like it was my job to sit in there and. And filter this doctrine to make sure that it's all on on target. And if it's not, I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to correct it, and you know, and then move on with the lesson. And you know, leave as the hero that that got everybody back on track. But I I'm to the point now in my classes where if somebody raised their hand and said, you know, I'm not sure about this, I I want people to be comfortable with that. I'm not saying that I can't raise my hand as the bishop and say, well, just to clarify as far as what the doctrine is in the church or how how the church generally sees it is this, but that's an interesting point of view. So any suggestions on how to help that person feel, the stage four Mormon feel comfortable in general, in a ward, in a Sunday school class, and that sort of
1: thing? Uh, two suggestions, and and I think these would both be really easy to do. One would be if you're aware of somebody in your ward Who's going to fit this kind of stage four paradigm? So the first thing I would have them you do as a leader is go sit down with them. And what I would do is try to set up an environment where you're empathetic towards them, but you're also asking them to be empathetic towards the rest of the people in the group. So if I sat down with a person who I kind of felt like is in this stage four, um, I would say to them, hey, I really understand where you're coming from. I, I really do. But my biggest concern as we meet here for three hours on Sunday is that we don't diminish the faith of anyone else in the room. So what I would ask of you is that I I welcome and I want your thoughts and ideas because they push all of us to think outside the box. But at the same time, too, I'm hoping that you will you will couch your words or choose your words wisely so as to provide people with a faith-building experience. And I think that would go a long way to do that. That's number one. The other thing, too, is as a leader, if someone in class does raise their hand and they say something... So let's say the person in stage three raises their hand and they say something silly like, uh, you know, we know with absolute certainty that the earth is 6,000 years old. Or if a person in stage four raises their hand and throws out some real problematic fact as if trying to push people kind of off their center, I would handle both of those the same way. What I would do is I would raise my hand and I would offer my view, but I would offer it and state it as an alternative. So if somebody, for instance, said the earth is 6,000 years old, I would raise my hand and I would say something to the effect of, uh, brother Jones, I really appreciate that comment. Uh, I would simply share with you that while some leaders have said that the Earth is 6,000 years old, other leaders have ventured to say that the Earth is likely millions, if not billions of years old, and that there are other alternative views to this idea. I, for one believe that the earth is is millions or billions of years old, and I don't seem to have any problem with that, reconciling that with my faith. Now, what I've done is I've let him down easy. I've not I've not squashed him. I've not offended him. I've not, you know, made him feel like I was putting him in his place. Rather, I couched my words in a way that I was offering an alternative view to what he was saying, and I was also validating that his view uh, also m- might be uh, authentic and true and real, just at there are other ways to see it. Perfect, and and it makes for a more dynamic and interesting Sunday school
0: class, which some people definitely need. So, <laughs> well, Bill, um, I appreciate your time uh, you've you've given to to discuss this. Uh, it's been very helpful. I think it, this will be a great resource for leaders to hear. Maybe tell us uh, where can we find you, and uh, what's the best way to uh, follow what you're what you're talking about.
1: So the, the podcast is found at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. And uh, like I said, an episode releases every week or so. About probably 20% of the episodes I do deal with this idea of stages of faith. Also, Kurt, for your listeners, I'll send you uh, a couple of documents. One is a, a member of a stake presidency in uh, in California who gives a wonderful talk to uh, the members of his stake that I think really sets up an atmosphere where people who are in stage four can feel comfortable and not feel like they're being pushed out. And then one of the documents that I sent to you in preparation for this, which is a Christian pastor who shares all the stages and he just words it so beautifully that I don't think anybody can walk away from reading that and not be able to empathize better with people who are struggling. I just think this is an important topic and the more we understand it, the more that we can uh, begin to kind of reach out and help those who perhaps don't see things the same way we do. I
0: sure appreciate Bill giving me some time to, to discuss this really important subject. And I'd love to hear what you think. What are some areas that are examples that you've experienced that fit into some of these concepts we've talked about? Please comment on this post, send me an email, or maybe we missed something. Maybe there's something that we, we need to look more into or understand better and email me and we can continue the dialogue and get more information out there. My hope is is that there's a bishop out there, a, a Relief Society president who has someone come to him. They don't know what to do, and so maybe they've stumbled across this interview, and now they've got an idea of where to go, or they understand what the other person is thinking. If you have benefited from this podcast, from this resource at Leading LDS, I encourage you to check out the Food Order Reference Guide and maybe the Consequence Stick. If you already have one, buy one for a friend or family or your own bishop or another leader. They'll appreciate it. And this is a way that we can contribute and move the mission of leading LDS forward. So check that out. Until next time, be a leader and not a calling.